0: good morning everyone this morning we are uh, continuing on in our series in first peter um, and i've been really enjoying making our way through this letter uh, as a church together and i've been really blessed by the teaching um, that we've received so far this uh, spring into summertime um, <clears throat> and i found it to be incredibly practical as Peter has been laying out, as we've considered in previous weeks, both the privileges and the responsibilities of the believer. Um, And as Drew mentioned last week, the second half of this letter, which we're now into, is largely devoted to to those responsibilities that those first-century Christians in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to had in their new identity in Christ. And those are the same responsibilities that we have as the the 21st-century Church of Christ. Um, And what is crucial for us to grasp is that these responsibilities that we have, we have them because of the privileges given to us. And what I mean by that is, if I can use Peter's own words, that because God in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we now have responsibilities as recipients of grace. Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness do you see those two responsibilities of dying to sin and living for righteousness we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone but as martin luther said we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone And we see this responsibility of uh, the sorry see this theme of the responsibility of the believer repeated throughout the new testament um we know that we are saved from a life of sin what shall we say then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means we are those who have died to sin how can we live in it any longer it says in romans 6 verses 1 and 2 so we know that we are saved from a life of sin and we've saved to a life of righteousness, to a life of doing good, as I think Peter would say. It says in Titus chapter three, verses seven and eight, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good to doing what is good and so as believers we have privileges and responsibilities and in this passage that we're about to consider today we see that one such responsibility that we have is suffering for doing what is good so if you can turn with me um, to First Peter chapter 3 we'll read from, from verse 8 through to verse 22 finally all of you be like minded Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened but in your hearts revere christ as lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him throughout this letter of 1st Peter we have already seen Peter's emphasis on doing good but at this stage of the letter Peter takes on a new approach of giving practical imperatives for the believer to demonstrate both how to behave within the context of the church and how to respond in the face of suffering and in order to make sense of this passage as a whole, um, we will revisit some of the verses that Drew touched on last week. So if you look with me at verses 8 and 9 there, you will see um, that Peter gives some commands. And if you look at these commands, you'll see that they're incredibly Christ like, aren't they? For example, we are commanded to be sympathetic. And Hebrews 4:15 15 meets, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. We are commanded to be compassionate. The original Greek literally meaning a a feeling deep down in the boils. And Matthew 9, verse 36 says, when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And another example, we are commanded to be humble. And Jesus described himself, didn't he, as gentle and humble in heart. In Matthew 11, verse 29. Peter is calling us to be Christ-like in our behaviour. Even in the instruction to repay evil with blessing, in verse 9, we are we are reminded of Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches, bless them that curse you. The imperatives Peter gives here are very much Christ-oriented. Peter then changes the pace slightly and begins to deal with this responsibility of suffering. And he seems to command the believer in these verses to do good, as he has done throughout the letter, but now to be ready to suffer for doing good. In quoting Psalm 34, verse 11 reads, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. We must do good. Verse 13 says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? we are to be zealous for what is good, even with the prospect of suffering. And this passage makes it clear, doesn't it, that suffering is not only to be expected for the Christian, but also welcomed. Verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed. Similarly, chapter twenty—sorry, chapter 2, verse 20, argues, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This in itself is a great encouragement to us, isn't it, in our suffering? God's blessing and commendation are upon those who suffer for his name's sake. And I'm sure this would have been a great consolation to those first, heavily persecuted first century Christians scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. But why is it that our suffering for doing good is commendable before God? Why are we blessed in suffering? for what is right well chapter 2 verse 21 I believe gives the answer it reads to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps Jesus suffered for us leaving us an example that we might follow in the footsteps of our saviour we are called to be Christ like in our attitude to suffering and what a privilege this is Another man of whom we read in the pages of Scripture who was familiar with suffering and yet was remarkably joyful was the Apostle Paul. And the reason for his joy amidst suffering was that his heart's desire was to be like Christ. Indeed, Paul's life motto, if I can put it that way, is to live is Christ. He wrote to the church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And if I can quote him once more, Philippians chapter, chapter 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. You see, Paul's life was Christ. And so to follow in his footsteps and participate in his sufferings was both a privilege and a joy to him. And as it should be with us. Peter calls us to be Christ-like as we endure suffering for his sake. So Peter, we've seen, exhorts us to be Christ-like in our behaviour and in our attitude to suffering. How then are we to obey these commands? If you look back with me at verse 8, we'll see that a lot of these Christ-like qualities are very much heart matters, aren't they? Sympathy, compassion, humility, these qualities flow from the heart and as drew quoted last week um, in proverbs 4 verse 23 above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it how then are we to possess these christ-like qualities being sympathetic compassionate and humble and so on and similarly if you skip down to verse 14 how can we be uh, obey these commands to not fear threats of persecution to not fear tribulation but rather rejoice in suffering as christ did how can we follow christ's example in this well i believe in verse 15 peter again gives us the answer but in your hearts revere christ as lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have see the but there at the beginning of verse 15 it forces us to look back at what has immediately been said doesn't it so verse 14 says but even if you should suffer for what is right you are blessed do not fear their threats do not be frightened but in your hearts revere christ as lord i've not long finished um this book um by daniel strange it's called plugged in connecting your faith uh, with what you watch read and play and in it he includes a quote from a man called Greg Bale which reads what people revere they resemble either for ruin or for restoration what people revere they resemble and so as Peter has been exhorting the people of God, he's exhorting us to be Christ-like in our behaviour and in our attitude to suffering he now shows us what this actually looks like first and foremost it means to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts What you revere, you resemble. So as we revere Christ as Lord, worship him as Lord of our lives, we will increasingly desire to imitate him, as Paul did, and therefore we will increasingly resemble him. And ultimately, being Christ-like begins with having the right disposition towards Christ himself. And as Peter says here, our disposition is to be one of reverence. We were just singing there, come bow before him now with reverence and fear. And so, as we consider this command to, in our hearts, revere Christ as Lord, we're going to consider two questions. Firstly, what does it mean to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts? And secondly, how then can we revere Christ as Lord? Firstly, what does it mean to revere Christ as Lord? Well, the NLT translates, verse 15, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And to worship him as Lord of our lives, we also to have a correct view of him. And so let us return to Paul once again for help, Um, reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And just listen to the language that that Paul uses to describe Christ the Lord. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross what beautiful scripture that is Um, and Jesus himself said didn't he all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me indeed Peter closes this passage describing Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him This is the glorious Christ, the Lord of all creation and the Lord of our lives. And to revere him in our hearts is to treat him as such. Secondly then, how can we in our hearts revere Christ as Lord? We've already thought about how everything we do flows from our hearts. And biblically speaking, our hearts reflect who we are in the deepest sense We can think of Pharaoh back in Exodus whose refusal to let the Israelites go was due to his hardened heart. We can think of David who, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, in Psalm 51. And we can think of Christ himself and his teaching on the heart. Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We realise that our hearts are vitally important And so, as we come again to this command, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, we realize we must check our hearts. To revere Christ as Lord, to worship Him as Lord of our lives, this means to put Him before all else, to treasure Him more than all else. Remember what people revere, they resemble. And so, this morning, what are you revering in your hearts? Where is your treasure? Is it in your wealth, which is the context in which Jesus was teaching in Matthew 6? Is it in your job, a relationship, your family, comfort, security? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And to revere Christ as Lord in your heart is to treasure him above and before all else. we've considered that revering Christ as Lord, honouring him as Lord, is essential to our lives as we seek to imitate him and follow in his steps. But in the second half of verse 15, Peter shows us that by revering Christ as Lord in our hearts, this is key in our calling to share the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do you see how instead of fearing threats and being frightened at the prospect of suffering for the sake of Christ, as it talks about in verse 14, but rather revering Him as Lord in our hearts leads to hopeful, Christ like living, which then invites those around us to ask the reason for our hope? I wonder if you've ever come across the quote preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, the great Catholic theologian, and perhaps you heard it as an encouragement to display the love of Christ, uh, first and foremost with your actions, only using your words as a last resort. Um, However, St. Francis actually said no such thing. Um, It's found nowhere in his writings, nor do any of his biographers record that he said that. But more importantly, it's contradictory to the teaching of Scripture. Paul writes in Romans 10:14, "How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them?" Paul himself went from region to region preaching the good news, didn't he? And here in verse 15, Peter instructs the church to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It's crystal clear that our words are essential in our witness to Jesus. However, let's return to that, to that quote just for a minute. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Why we should never neglect our words um, as we share the love of Jesus, we ought to preach Christ in word and deed. Look at verse 16. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander again peter is concerned here with the, the behavior of believers he's concerned uh, with the behavior of believers who have been redeemed from an empty way of life as peter talks about in chapter 1 verse 18 and here he encourages us to maintain gentleness respectfulness and integrity in our witness to christ this is what effective evangelism looks like so that when met with hostility Those who slander you may be ashamed because of your good behaviour in Christ. And this is not because we are eager to shame or eager to receive honour for our own good behaviour, but rather, again to quote Peter, that those who accuse you of doing wrong may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Chapter 2, verse 12. Our goal and our motive in evangelism in both word and deed is the glory of God and this slander this hostility this suffering that you will receive from doing good and for, from from revering christ as lord it's not in vain it's not irrelevant peter again shows that this suffering is commendable before god verse 17 for it is better if it is god's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil why then is it all worth it this suffering Well, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. As he has done this whole letter, Peter is ever pointing us away from our present sufferings, away from our present circumstances, and towards our Lord. He earnestly desires his readers to fix their eyes upon our Saviour who has gone before us. And here in verse 18 is the wonderful message of the gospel, isn't it? Christ suffering once for all for sins. His substitutionary death in our place on the cross. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, says the old hymn. Depicting the righteous Christ dying for the unrighteous that is us. To reconcile us to the Father. What marvellous grace. And if you don't know Jesus as your saviour this morning, this gift of grace, this offer of forgiveness of sin and eternal life can be yours. And why? Because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so as we near the end of this passage, we come across a rather confusing text um, from verses 18 to 22. As Martin Luther once wrote, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. And so as we approach this text, we must do so humbly and with the utmost caution. I think a good question to ask when met with this text is, why why is Peter, including in his letter to the scattered believers in the first century, a brief account of the flood recorded in Genesis. Perhaps within these verses there's a clue. Verse 19 says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolises baptism, that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but but the pledge Of a clear conscience towards God. During the flood, only Noah's family, eight people out of the entire population of the earth, were saved, while the rest were judged because of their wickedness. And so, do you see how Peter makes the comparison between the first-century church and Noah and his family? Verse 21 says, "And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge." Have a clear conscience towards God. Both Noah and his family, and the elect exiles, would have um, been extremely, would have felt extremely isolated. They would have felt vastly outnumbered. They would have undergone incredible suffering and persecution for their faith. And yet, God is able and gracious to save amidst judgment, amidst suffering, amidst persecution. And so I think Peter includes this account to encourage the believers who, despite the present persecution, despite looming judgment, have been made righteous by faith and will therefore be saved. And well, how is this possible? Well, Peter yet again returns to Christ. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers. In submission to Him. So as Peter encourages us to, in our hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and to be Christ-like in our behaviour and in our attitude to suffering. Including, I want to just highlight how, again and again, Peter instructs us to look away from ourselves to and towards Jesus. And just as I finish, let me offer three very brief ways in which we are to look to Christ. Firstly, we are to look to Christ as our example, the sympathetic, compassionate, gentle, humble carpenter who was reviled and yet blessed, who was hated and yet who loved. We are to look to him as our example and imitate him in our behaviour. We are to look to Christ as our example. Secondly, we are to look to Christ as our pioneer who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross scorning its shame we are to look to Christ as our forerunner, the one who has gone before us and suffered once for sins, suffered for us leaving an example that we might follow in his steps so that we might be joyful in affliction, joyful in suffering until one day we are with him in glory I'm going to quote Paul one last time For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Take heart in in that that verse this morning that the present sufferings are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Romans 8, verse 18. We are to look to Christ as our pioneer. And finally, we are to look to Christ as our Saviour. The one who through his death And resurrection has rescued all who believe in him from the coming judgment and brought us to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, Lord, that you would bless this scripture to our hearts. That you would help us, Lord, to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts to put him before all else to treasure him above all else, so that we we may imitate him in our behavior and follow in his footsteps. And it's in his wonderful saving name that I pray. Amen.